Ukrainian social and political life is profoundly decentralized. It is based upon the idea of Hromada, an autonomous grassroots community able to defend itself when it is facing aggression. This is what is happening now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One of the intellectual roots of this decentralized political culture can be found in Mikhailo Drahomanov, a prominent Ukrainian 19th century intellectual. In this episode, we will tell you his story. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading International Department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Mikhailo Drahomanov, what are the first ideas that come to your mind when you, when you hear this, uh, this last name, when you hear this name? Well, uh, Mikhail Dorhamanov is one of the most important and prominent figures of the 19th century. Why and why exactly? Because he founded this tradition of political thinking in Ukraine. For many decades, he, will, he was poorly known in Ukraine, but now we discover him as a profoundly European thinker, philosopher, political philosopher, and maybe last but not least, uncle of Lesia Ukrainka, a prominent uh, we, uh, woman, uh, Ukrainian classics, we already discussed in our previous podcast. So Drahomanov, very open-minded personality, very European one. And uh, his idea, one of the central ideas he's, he suggested in his time is still actual now, as you already mentioned, this idea of decentralized political culture and decentralization, which is the, maybe the heart of our political reform. That's that's it. And uh, the important thing about Drahomanov, I think, is that he combines many different roles. He combines many different aspects. An interesting thing is that we we are talking about a certain type of people in in Ukrainian culture of the nineteenth century who are combining different um, different personalities, different roles. For example, we can talk about one of the key historians of the 19th century, early 19th century, the elder, uh, let's say, the, the elder colleague of Drahomanov, Mykola Kostomarov. Kostomarov, a friend of, Shef- of Taras Shevchenko, our great poet, uh, but at the same time he was somebody, of course, close to the literary circles, close to writers, and Shevchenko himself is a poet, a writer, but also a painter, right? Uh, the disciple of Drahomanov, Ivan Franco, is also somebody who is a um, who is a scientist, who is a historian, who is ethnographer, but also a writer, a poet, uh, writing poetry, writing prose, writing dramas. Uh, and uh, Lesia Ukrainka that you mentioned, uh, a dramatist, a great dramatist, but at the same time very with very big interest to science. So. Drahomanov and another great intellectual with 
Krimli or, origins with Crimean Tatar origins, Atangel Krimsky. I hope we will talk about him in one of our episodes. He's also a person who, who writes literary texts, who, who writes uh, fiction. And let's not forget about uh, Drahomanov's sister, Olena Pchilka, who was the mother of Lesia Ukrainka. So also this literary tradition was present in the family. So this is also about family. This is also about education, right? This is uh, about the attitude. So not, not separating these fields, uh, history, political thinking and literature, all of that was important at that times. Right. And, and Drahomanov, who writes... Uh, texts, which are very important texts, about Ukrainian songs, right? So this is also a tradition coming from the Romanticism, of course, from Kostomarov, from Maksimovich, from Szyznevsky, from, from other people, early 19th century. And we can, we can, of course, we can say that this, is, this was a very important thing for Ukrainian culture of the 19th century. Why? Because uh, these ideas which were coming from the German Uh, romanticism or pre-romanticism from Herder, for example, who started collecting the German songs. It was important. Collecting songs is is not a not an ethnographic cliche, right? It's it's a very important trend in the late 18th, early 19th century because it was actually an interest towards a non-written culture, a culture which is not passing the, the filter of book printing, of book writing, and not passing the filter of the elitist society. Uh, I would say that it was it had a link with what we call popular culture, popular culture which was not present in books, right? Uh, not so very much present in books. And there is also no no distance, in fact, in such figures as, as Drahomana, but also as Ukrainka. They are close to, to people, what we call people, to popular things, like they're close to popular culture, to peasants' culture, right? And Tarasivchenko is maybe the son of this culture, the son of these people. But at the same time, there is no contradiction in that and the links to intellectual tradition. So these people were reading many foreign languages, like Lesia Ukrinka, who mastered many foreign languages, and Rahmanov himself will talk about his, his trip to abroad, and so the most of his life he lived abroad, far from Ukraine, unfortunately. And uh, But these people, they felt no, there were no um, idea of supremacy of these uh, I don't know, intellectual tradition uh, compared to popular culture. They were, they were mastering both. Yes, and, and this is a very interesting thing. So coming back to this uh, songs co- collection, uh, the Romantics just collected, well, when Kostomarov is publishing songs collection, he actually publishes texts, not even notes of these songs. Primarily, this is a collection of texts, of poetry, and you're reading a, a songbook, a collection of songs, as you're reading a poetry book. Drahmanov does absolutely different thing. He, he publishes a thing, he, he, he's doing this with Antonovich, another very interesting figure of that generation, of the second half of the 19th century, and, and Pole by origins, uh, Volodymyr Antonovich, a key figure for, for Kiev, uh, uh, so Drahomanov and Antonovich are already in a different mood. They're in a in a mood of what we might call positivist science. So they're publishing texts of these songs with lots of comments, with lots of commentary. Um, they Drahomanov uh, looks at those songs as history, as 
remarks as, as basically material helping to understand Ukrainian history. So he takes a, histori- a historical song uh, about Cossacks, about some battles, and he commands it very widely in a very, um, very profound scientific no knowledgeable way. So this is another approach, right? So you are you're not approaching song as a kind of a reservoir for uh for the soul of, of your people, but rather reservoir of, of its history. And it's 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 very interesting thing. But let's talk about Drahmanov as a political uh political thinker. Uh, yes, and maybe the main accent to put here is about in which way and how exactly does uh, the Romanov uh, uh, thoughts differ from what we have in, in what we call Russian political culture. Because the Romanov is important himself, but it's he's uh, mostly important as a kind of symptom, right, of the Ukrainian political culture. Would you agree? Yes, because for example, uh, we associate the word Hromada, which is very, in, which is which, which was not invented by Drahomanov, obviously, which existed in Ukrainian language, and the milieus in which uh, he was acting in Kiev was called Kievska Hromada, the Hromada of Kiev. So the idea of Hromada, Hromada means community. Uh, means that the idea of politics is a crossroads idea. So politics is not something which is defined by an emperor, by by the tsar, by, by somebody knight. else, by by divine law, whatever else. Politics is something that grows from from the grassroots level, from the organization and self organization of people. This is, of course, the profoundly we might call democratic vision of politics. Uh, and this grassroots, bottom-up vision of politics is very, very much um, alternative to the Russian imperial vision of politics, where politics is top-down approach. When there is a tsar, or Putin, or president, or whatever how you call him, and he just gives orders, and these orders are implemented or not implemented. Yeah, this is about the source of power, the sacred source of power for Drahmanov and for people who think like him. Uh, the source of power is certainly people, grassroots, this community, this Hromada, people present on on this in the, on this territory, and for 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 Russian thinking, it's mostly uh, just a leader, political leader, or, or or spiritual leader who just has this uh, sacred power and who orders everything. So this is a different point, you know, different vision of what what politics is and what what uh, what the political system should be. And this and, is and not is this, this is not just theoretical thought because, for example, take the recent example. Uh, everybody is discussing the interview of uh, Ukrainian chief commander Valery Zaluzhny to the Economist, and what he's saying that. I am suggesting uh, a different type of leadership compared to the Soviet army, compared to the Russian army. Uh, in the Russian army, there is top-down leadership where uh, the, the, the commander is a master and he, he gives orders. If these orders are stupid, absurd, no matter, you have to implement them. Uh, otherwise, as Zaluzhny says, you are fucked up, right? Uh, and Zaluzhny tries to implement another another co- concept of leadership, which is, of course, much more Western, European, democratic, in which uh, this is all about delegation of powers, trust to your subordinates, trust to the grassroots initiatives. We, uh, we also discussed in this podcast a lot when we were discussing Ukrainian political culture, 
we were telling you how incredible it was this mobilization this uh, uh, organic mobilization of people at the early stages early days of this uh, big war when in every village there was territorial defense units uh, every single village was self organized finding uh, rifles uh, somewhere and uh, building barricades etc so this means that the ideas of Drahomanov are actually very much organically inside this society. Yes, and the, each time there is a violation of this principle of um, top-down uh, communication, even according to Zaluzhny. And uh, now we are facing these uh, complications with this law. Zaluzhny supported a law about about punishment of military, of Ukrainian military, in, in case of disobedience. So a great. Quite quite a big scandal, and we see uh, so Ukrainian soldiers being in some in some cases very critical. So it's not something like an aki, aki. Uh, the I mean this idea of the of communication of being on the on the on the on the side of the people of soldiers. It's something quite quite vital and which is to be reaffirmed every day with each, with every new step with every new development so even Zaluzhny even being said that he said that to economists it, oh, and we've already observed how efficient Ukrainian army was in the beginning but this is not in a key so uh, there will be a lot of criticism even if uh, Zaluzhny or somebody else will try to centralize the center of taking decisions. And we see this something very proper and very organic in, in Ukrainian society, even if it creates some, some, some maybe unpleasant scandals and some many, maybe unpleasant discussions inside the society or between society and army. It, it exists, but this is, this is how it functions in a way. Yes. And this is what we might call anarchy, anarchic, anarchic element in the Ukrainian society. And when you think about the concept of anarchy, uh, as a political concept, you might think about uh, such people as uh, Proudhon in France or such people as Kropotkin or Bakunin in, uh, in Russia. But actually, Drahomano was also identifying himself as an anarchist. Or you might think about such people as Nestor Makhno, of course. Uh, I think the most the most famous Ukrainian anarchist. But um, Drahomano was not into interpreting this word anarchy in the in the way as Russian anarchists would do. Because for Russian anarchists uh, who were living in, at, at, at his time, uh, they were saying, okay, Tsar is, Tsar is bad. This empire is very bad. What we need to do is just to kill the Tsar and to instore something else uh, instead of the Tsar. So, so the idea was you, you need to kill this, you know, head. As somebody, you know, this Western naivete about Putinism and Putin's regime, it's, 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 it really rhymes with this Russian anarchist and nihilist of late 19th century. Remember all these terrorist acts about, yeah. about the Tsars. Um, and this is naivete because, okay, you remove the Tsar, there is, there is another Tsar who just uses the system. And this is what happened with the Bolsheviks who were natural continuators of the Russian 19th century anarchism. And uh, people like Plekhanov were really um, behind the, the construction of the uh, of this Bolshevik party. What Drahomanov meant by anarchy is something different. Anarchy for, for him 
doesn't mean that you should remove the the principle and put something else. Anarchy means that in a society you don't have one arche, mm-hmm. one uh, point of the pyramid. You have multiple arches. You have multiple. Uh, so you, you can call it actually polyarchy, not even the anarchy, but polyarchy, uh, polycentrism, what we call decentralization, polycentralization, right, in which – and this is how Ukraine is structured, by the way. Yes, and uh, this is not no surprise uh, how how the life of the Romanov was during the in time of the Russian Empire, right? He was literally chased by 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 Rush, by Russian Empire abroad, right? So he left. Left, uh, he left Ukraine at uh, ninety-seventy-six. Uh, so it was it was uh, the so-called AMS uh, decree, AMS ukaz, that uh, bans Ukrainian language from the uh, from the public use. And the war also uh, one of the I think it was one of the clauses in this decree is that two people were uh, not allowed to live in Ukraine. And this was Drahomanov and I think Chubinsky. Uh, so they could actually move to Russia. Uh, they were not uh, expelled from the Russian Empire. Mm, uh, it was one of the types of punishment of the Russian Empire when, when you are not allowed to go to your native land. Let's be precise. He, he, was, he was personally mentioned in the... Yes, he was personally mentioned, but he already left. He knew that uh, there is something something going on. Uh this was a uh, this is a, a a trick of the Russian Empire to ban you from living in your native native areas. Remember that, for example, when uh, Taras Shevchenko was freed from the uh, from the long ten year um, ten year katorga, how you say it, not katorga, but um, uh, zaslanya, zaslanya, right? How you exile. say it in English? Exile, exile. In, uh, inside the Russian Empire. He was not allowed for some time to go. Uh, to, Ukraine. to Ukraine, he 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 wanted to do that, but he was not allowed. Um, so Drahomanov was not allowed to be in Ukraine. So he could move to Saint Petersburg, but not in Ukraine. He preferred not to go to Saint Petersburg and to emigrate. By the way, do do you think that there is some link with what we observe now with with Drahomanov, with these bans to leave where, where you want, with your native native land, and what we see with these forced deportations of populations exactly. from the south and from the east? There is some some important things. So going, cutting yeah. cutting you from the roots. That's a very very important thing for. It comes for from from totalitarian, but I think in fact that so if you speak about Drahomanov, it's also in this 19th century Russia, this is something profound here, that you, when you ban people from living when they were born and when their life is, it's like you you just break these people. You, just, you don't kill them, but you just uh, deprive them of what of their native uh, world, of their family, of their uh, this childhood. Is what, this is what is described by our dissidents in the memoirs of our dissidents from Mikola Rodenko to Miroslav Marinovich and many other people. They describe this, actually. They describe this intention of the system, repressive system, just to send you somewhere very, very far from, from your land, just to cut cut the roots. Of and by the way, uh, towards the Jewish Jews, it was the same politics during the se- several decades in Soviet Union. So Jews were not allowed to live in that distance from Moscow and from that distance of big cities. So you mean Russian Empire? 
No, I mean in in even in Soviet times, okay. in in um, times close to Second World War. So there were many many practices, and maybe they are. We should call them totalitarian. Maybe not always totalitarian, but repressive po- policies of uh, Russian Empire, be it in form of 19th century or in the Soviet Empire, or even now, what's we observe now in the south, when they, in, in, in around Kherson, when they were deporting people, or from Mariupol, they were de- devastated the city and then they deported uh, millions. By the way, official figures now come up to 2 million people deported for, by force to Russian regions, different Russian regions, 2 million out of 40 million Ukrainians before this full-scale invasion. So it makes a great number of people, right? So this is something very proper to this Russian policy. Yeah, the, the abundance of space, which actually creates a, a politics of, of cutting from your roots. And Crimea, let's, let's, let's mention that once again, Crimean Tatars, what Stalin did in 44, right? So this uh, just cutting uh, Crimean Tatars story from Crimea, and then it took them decades to come back. So Drahmanov left Russian Empire um, in uh, 1876, and uh, he was uh, going to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, to the Habsburg Empire. Uh, he spent some time in Lviv and, and connected with the uh, intelligentsia in Galicia, in Halicina. And this was very important because it was kind of a, well, Russian Empire tried to harm the Ukrainian cause, but actually it, it, it strengthened the Ukrainian cause because Drahomano was, I think, the most prominent intellectual of that time, and he 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 really influenced many people uh, in Halicina, and in Halicina, Halicina became the center of the Ukrainian cause because Ukrainian language was not banned; people could publish their books in Ukrainian language, and uh, in in some aspects, uh, he of course he influenced young Ivan Franko, but also some other people like Pavlik and and others, but uh, well. Living in Vienna, he, it was not good for him. So this is a very important thing about him. He did not like empires. So we can say that Habsburg Empire was more liberal than the Russian Empire, but he did not like Habsburg Empire as well. He, he was thinking it it was too filled with spies and with control and with everything. So he chose another place, and it is very symbolic place. It is Geneva. So Geneva, uh, um, Switzerland, for him, uh, let's let's just have this in mind that Geneva uh, was at that time one of the tiny republics in this mostly imperial Europe. And um, being in Geneva meant that you kind of support this long republican idea of a city-state well, Geneva was not a city-state, but uh, uh, kind of this idea of a polis, republican polis. And I think here um, I always try to put this parallel between uh, the concept of Hromada and the concept of polis. Because Drahomano was, by education, what he was teaching in Kiev before he left the Russian Empire, he was teaching ancient history. He wrote a dissertation about, I think, Roman times. And uh, I didn't look at the, I don't know if it exists, the conspects of his lectures, but it would be really interesting to see 
that actually there is a parallel between how he describes politics and how Aristotle describes politics. Because what Aristotle says about polis, about politics, right, that it is a natural thing. It is constructed step by step. There are some villages and then they uh, they become bigger. It's not like this modern conception of politics of Thomas Hobbes, that this is artificial man, that this is all. No, Art- uh, Aristotle is much more organic in this. He sees politics as a continuation of a natural life of, of, of people. And so is Trahomanov. Uh, so he says that, okay, first there are Hromadas, then they can uh, unify themselves in what he calls a Tovaristvo Tovarist, and Tovaristvo Tovaristvo, Hromada Hromad, this is a state when different mm-hmm. communities, different policies uh, make up a national state. But then there is a third stage, which we might call Hromada uh, Hromad Hromat, or Tavaristvo, Tavarist, Tavarist, right? So the community of the communities of communities, meaning the community of states. And this is a very important thing. Why? Because Traumano was not alone at the time. It was coming from the Romantic age, this idea that we should build a La République des Peuples, a Republic of Peoples, or Republic of Nations. It was a very important idea that uh, of this democratic nationalism of early 19th century. Why it is important today? Because generally it is what behind European Union today, for example. What is European Union? It's a third way between nation-state, quite aggressive to its neighbors, but consolidated inside, and empire, which erases ethnic differences, right? So you have a nation and you're kind of a building horizontal relations to other nations. Now, so the ideal of this uh, Republic of Nations and Drahomano was, of course, uh, willing to, to have this idea implemented. Yes, indeed. And let's not forget that he was signing his letters and some of his texts, at least his uh, letters to Lysa Ukrainka, like, like Mikhail Ukraine is Ukrainian, right? So he was... Uh, identifying himself as Ukrainian philosopher, Ukrainian political thinker. But at the same time, if you compare his way of thinking with, for example, the way of thinking of his sister, Olenapchilka, you'll clearly see the, the difference because he was not Ukraine-centered in a way. He was not at all a kind of narrow nationalist or whatever. He was thinking in a very broad idea of what republic is, of what this way of governing should be uh, independently in Ukraine or elsewhere. In fact, so it was about the, the, the universal organization of a society, you know. It was more or less about universal principles of how governance should be, should be done in a, in a, in a, in a decent society and in a good country, right? So he was basing himself on a universal principles. And I think that uh, Lesa Ukrainka has taken all, the, all these universal ideas, at, at least some of these universal ideas from him and not from 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 her mother. And this is important because it was, uh, Drahmanov was banned by, by Russian Empire. He was expulsed, so he was in exile all his life, big part of his life. But uh, he was not at all a kind of uh, national or whatever, he was just an extremely intelligent way of considering governance, 
power, uh, republic and society with explicit interest to Ukraine, but not exaggerated one, you know. So, and that's why, uh, he, his texts are interesting not only for Ukrainians now. So you can easily open his text now, um, texts which, which are available in English, some of them at least. And you'll find, uh, a, a plenty of things which are of great interest not only for you, for specialists of the period or specialists of the region, but there uh, some some important political thinking per se. Yes, um, he was rather to the left. I think he was left centrist, which we, we would call him left centrist. For for Russians, of course, he was a nationalist. But for uh, he had big battles with the Ukrainian nationalists, both in uh, in Russian Empire and in Halychina. So they actually. He criticized them, for example, for a radical stance on Russia, that they don't, do not want to read Russian books. He was saying that uh, you, you have to get knowledge from everywhere, including from Russia. Uh, he was also criticizing the, the cult of, of Taras Shevchenko uh, among the Ukrainian patriots. So he was rather, I mean, he was one of the first to try to write a kind of objective scientific uh, at least not biography of Shevchenko, but uh, some notes to the biography of Shevchenko. So it was a very, very really critical thinker. But coming back to this idea of uh, Republic of Nations, another very important idea of Drahomanov, which also comes from uh, the Romantic Age, was the idea of federation. So he was saying that Russian Empire should turn into a genuine federation. And... Uh, by federation, he meant that instead of this top-down approach, the uh, Russian Empire should turn into this really pluralized state. Maybe in, uh, in uh, well, the word federation at that time meant actually allusion to United States, to the Federalist as the major pay as as the major publication uh, which constructed the idea of the United States, and. Um, and I think this is also remarkable because we can see behind his idea of federation of nations, again, as I said, the European Union, but also I think that Soviet Union, in the way how it was constructed by Lenin, would, would not be possible without this preliminary idea which was developed by Ukrainians. Uh, that uh, Russian Empire should turn into a federation. And of course, maybe it was an illusion at that time. We know that it was an illusion. It was kind of a, the empire was preserved and then it was possible for it to make another set of crimes. But still, well, such country as Ukraine achieved in Soviet Union its borders, its administrative structure, and that was a time bomb for this empire uh, uh, that it collapsed in 1991. So there is certain um, contribution of Drahomanov uh, to that. And therefore, when we are now discussing Russian Empire, I think one of the key arguments would be that, look, it is called Russian Federation, so we should turn it into a real federation with the capacity of the uh, <clears throat> numerous subjects of federation to leave it, to leave it peacefully, 
Yes, exactly. And what if imagine imagine a second that Rahmana would be alive now. So quite interesting to see his opinion about this war and specifically about about the future of Russian Federation. So the maybe the major question about this war is about what to do with Russia after the war, after the victory. And this is a difficult question and we do understand that for many Europeans, for our partners from Europe and from abroad, overseas, this is a difficult question because nobody really knows what to do with Russia and how, could to, how to control it, how to control nuclear weapons. And this is a question which raises a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, fears and a lot of, uh, yes, a lot of uncertainty in many countries. And I would say that, yes, indeed, I would only agree with you that Rahmanov, he knew the answer to this question. He was not afraid to suggest this way of, of solution uh, to this difficult problem, right? Yeah, of course, in the Ukrainian tradition, this approach is is now met with lots of criticism. Why? Because uh, with regard to Ukraine's place in the Russian Empire, because uh, it also was very important for the Ukrainian independence of 1917. As we know, the Central Council, Central Narada, was not really hurrying with proclaiming Ukrainian independence. First, they were with this Drahomanov's idea that, okay, we need just to decentralize Russian Empire, we need to federalize it, and they were proclaiming autonomy from the from Moscow, and with only with time they they finally proclaimed independence. Also, we understand that let's let's talk about a little bit about the legacy of Drahomanov. Uh, a big twentieth uh, century Ukrainian intellectual, Ivan Lysiak Rudnitsky. Um, if you read his essays, he, he wrote a lot of essays about Drahomanov. So I think for him there are two major intellectual figures um, in Ukraine, in Ukrainian tradition, Drahomanov, which represents rather this grassroots democratic tradition, and Vyacheslav Lipinski, uh, which represents rather aristocratic tradition. Lipinski, who also had uh, Polish origins, as, as Antonovich had. Um, and this is this is very Interesting, a very interesting thing because there are two poles of this early 20th century Ukrainian independence. On the one hand, you have UNR, Ukraine's People's Republic, which was much more leftist, uh, democratic, socialist. On the other hand, you have Ukrainska Derzhava, Ukrainian state by Hetman Skoropatsky, uh, with whom Lipinski co- co- cooperated very much, and uh, which was much more... I would say aristocratic, maybe hierarchical, also trying to deal with the big landowners. And then you had another thing which actually developed in the 30s when both of these projects collapsed. Uh, and then you had people like Donsov or like Malanyuk who were very, um, had a lot of disgust towards this, what, what Malanyuk called Drahomanovshina, mm-hmm. uh, meaning this left leaning, socialist uh, thinking, utopian maybe thinking, which uh, did not let Ukrainian state to defend itself, to develop a powerful army, for example. And he, this is the point for you to understand, for our listeners to understand why Ukrainian radical nationalism was born in the 30s, because all the other alternatives, like the socialist alternative or maybe conservative uh, moderate conservative alternative like of Lipinski were actually defeated, defeated by, by Bolshevism. And therefore, there was this 
uh, demand for more radical ideas. But then after the Second World War, if we talk about such people as Lysiak Rudnitsky, if we talk about the current Ukrainian debates, well, of course, Drahomanov, he doesn't, he doesn't provide answers to all the questions, for example, to the question of army, to the question of defense, but he does provide uh, certain ideas. And I think this key idea that Ukrainian political culture is based upon the idea of Hromada and is very decentralized. So this is, this is our attempt to summarize uh, Drahomanov as a political thinker, and we will try to cover other figures as well um, in, our, in our series Discovering Ukrainian Culture. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us, to share our podcasts, our other materials. You can also read our Twitter, our Facebook. And don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your assistance to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian defenders. Patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.